Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How does a top brass military man, a three-star general no less, confront the truth about a culture of sexism and misogyny under his own command? And what can you do about it when some of his soldiers are resistant to change? Well, if you're David Morrison, the man who went on to become Australian of the Year, you go in hard, because perhaps at heart, you're a born troublemaker. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again! Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. This is episode four of our series looking at new leadership, a style of feminised leadership that we've seen highlighted during the coronavirus crisis, in stark contrast to the struggles of the world's strongman leaders. Unlike previous episodes where my guests have all been women parliamentarians, today we're switching to men in power to talk to someone who knows all about male command. But before you're meeting, my thanks to those who've been in contact. I've really, really appreciated your feedback, and it's been wonderful to read your comments. Please keep them coming. The best way to connect with us on Broad Talk is to pull up a virtual chair at our Broad Talk Roundtable on Facebook. You can find us there as Broad Talk, all one word. And while you're at it, don't forget to hit subscribe on your favourite pod platform so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And if you're feeling encouraging, please do leave a review. That really helps us get the word out about this series. Now, David Morrison is an extraordinary leader. He's well aware of his privilege and pedigree. His father was a major general, and it was perhaps unsurprising that David rose to be a lieutenant general in the Australian Army. 
But what is surprising is what this army boss has done with his position of power. As a broadcaster, I've long watched David Morrison with a curious fascination. Appointed Chief of Army in 2011, it was quickly obvious that he was tough, but he was also open to new thinking. When the penny dropped about the sexism festering in his force, David didn't just call out a few troublemakers – He shook up the whole army culture. He put army failings on diversity and gender equality on public display. And consequently, he made a lot of enemies along the way. His famous 2013 video speech, in which he furiously bellowed at soldiers who didn't like including women among their ranks to get out, has been viewed over two million times on YouTube. In 2016, the Prime Minister named David Morrison Australian of the Year. He went on to use that honour to speak tirelessly around the nation about gender equality, violence against women and leadership. David, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Virginia. Thank you for joining me to talk on Broad Talk. There are a number of things that we're going to cover today, but I want to just skip over a lot of your leadership talk. And I know you've given many, many presentations and speeches indeed around the world on leadership. But let's start with the fact that in many respects, whilst you're retired now, in many respects in your professional life, and in fact, in your civilian life, you reached the highest rankings possible. In the army, you were a a three-star lieutenant general, chief of army. And then in civilian life, you were made Australian of the Year in 2016. Now, of all the millions of people that could have been uh, appointed Australian of the Year, they picked you. So that is the highest ranking in civilian life. So for someone so awarded and so successful at achieving those sort of leadership titles and ranks, if you like, I find it quite extraordinary because really at heart you're quite a troublemaker, aren't you? A troublemaker? (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, I dare say my mother would probably agree (laughs) with you. God rest her soul. Well, but you've got yourself into a lot of trouble over time. My wife describes me uh, on several... uh, Level. She says that I'm the most immature 64-year-old she's ever <laughs> met, which I take as a bit of a compliment. And she says that I do nuance really badly. And for someone who loves poetry and, and philosophical uh, thought, I, I sort of would like to take issue with her on it. But if I ever had an epitaph, I dare say it would be he never left him wondering. <laughs> and I don't mind that. I, I think I've probably always had, instilled by my parents, enough confidence to express a view and if the view is challenged to either argue the point or, and I say this with a little bit of pride, if it can be demonstrated that the view was incorrect or, uh, you know, misaligned, to go away and and rethink it and perhaps recalibrate my perspective. And you have changed your mind about I that. Have. I have. Hmm. I have definitely. And I've definitely changed as a person probably more, more so in the last 10 years than in the, the previous 50. We're going to come to that because that's that's very, very significant. But just coming back to getting yourself in trouble and, and being – look, in, 
quite frankly, a bit of a wild card in that you, you know, you, you've almost stubbornly done things that you knew would be unpopular. Let's go back to the army, for example. Here you were chief of army in about 2013. You uh, decided to include the rainbow flag, for example, mm. on an insignia, was it, mm, or a yes. badge? Yeah. Now, that, that was unpopular. Yeah. You also allowed for the first time military personnel to march in the gay pride Mardi Gras. Uh, that people had been marching before. But, but but not with the authority of the Chief of Army. Well, in fact, I've got to say too, with the authority of the then Chief of the Defence Force, David Hurley, who's our current Governor-General, there was uh, there was un- unanimous support from all three service chiefs for that. So it wasn't just me uh, out of step. In fact, I was very much in step on that one. And I think we made, as a leadership group, just the right decision. But of course, you know, when you introduce change or when you express a view that that sits people up and and makes them think whether they're affronted or whether they agree or whether they mull over what what you've said or what you've done and then eventually form their own opinion. We as human beings are always unsettled a little bit when our daily routine Mm. or, you know, the the paradigm we see the world in gets challenged and by somebody, but it hasn't. Well, it would appear that it hasn't worried you that that at times you've. I was going to say made enemies, but that probably doesn't sound appropriate for someone who's chief of army. But, but you you did things that were unpopular. I mean, you even you went, you pushed forward and. Even in civilian life, at 2016, when you were made the Australian of the Year, and I remember I was standing there, and I, when you gave your speech, um, looking pretty shocked, I got to say, because of course no one knows who is going to be announced the Australian of the Year. I know I've been there myself, and it's very nerve wracking. And you accepted, of course, the award from the Prime Minister, but then you did something that really. It surprised some people and angered some people. Mm. You identified three things that you would take action on during your year as Australian of the Year, one being uh, take action on the Republic, which in itself was very controversial, but also take action on domestic violence and gender equality. And you were criticised for those things. Oh, and look, you know, everyone's got a right. You know, we're a democracy. Um, I tell this great story about uh, my father, who was just the most extraordinary man and the the greatest male role model in my life. You know, he had commanded an infantry battalion in Vietnam in, in 1969, the 9th Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment. And it was a terrible year of fighting for them. They had 36 soldiers killed and well over 100 wounded in a year, just that one unit of 700. And I remember standing as a very, very proud 13-year-old in the streets of Adelaide as he marched his battalion down the Rundle Street, I think it was. And as as he passed the saluting dais where I was, there was a crowd of protesters over the road, jeering and and screaming abuse. It was very confronting. What were they protesting? They were protesting against conscription and and because it was such a divisive time in in Australian society. Um, And I I sought Dad out, you know, after the march and said, oh, this is awful, I'm so upset. And I'll never forget him saying this. He said, you know, you've got to see it differently, son. Mm. We were fighting, we, the soldiers of his battalion, we were fighting for 
democracy and freedom of speech. And this is what you've just seen. Yes, it indeed. was a remarkable yeah. moment for me. So you know, I look. No one likes being unpopular. No one like. I, I don't like being, you know, antagonising people. If I think it's right, then I'll hold to my views. But I don't begrudge or get angry when people do this. You know, when people take public issue with me, I might think it's unfair and and I think I've probably had my fair share of unfair criticism, but it's the way, it's the world we live in. And if I just argue the fact that you don't like what I've just Mm. said, then I stop saying what I should be saying. And we both get into this circular shouting match, which characterises so much of what we see as leadership debate at all levels around the world. I just think it's pointless. Mm. Do you know, um, your example there of your father just reminds me of one of my own, which I'm going to share with you too. My dad um, was a uh, managing director of an engineering firm and as a kid I'd looked up to him enormously. I thought he was, you know, pretty pretty jolly special, which he was. And when his firm at one stage had terrible problems with unions and union labour, um, my father went out to address the, the the workers and was standing on a some sort of podium and someone threw a tomato at him. Oh. And I, 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 as a kid, I wasn't there, but I certainly heard the story. I was devastated. That was my, yeah, my beautiful can, darling father. And that. I remember thinking, how could anyone do that? But my father had a similar response to yours, well, was that the, the, the it was simply that the men, and they're all men, um, who worked in the factory that, that he ran didn't understand, or this was his description of the time, or my understanding as a kid, didn't understand um, the changes that would be made and he had to go and explain them to them and that the, the tomato didn't hurt him at all. Interestingly, I, I grew up to be a staunch union uh, member and still am, in fact, and, and always would be. But it was, yeah, that moment of... of had he not explained to me that this was okay and that this is part of a process, I, I think I would have, uh, from that moment on, thought that unionism was something really terrible when, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Yes. And so, you know, the, the, we have these moments, all of us, every single person has this, mm. these moments that actually shape us as human beings mm. and help mould our character. And the one with Dad, the one with your dad, had a big impact on me. Mm. So, uh, yes, I, I think I've probably... I do nuance badly and I, I don't leave people wondering. And I only had a three-minute speech. <laughs> what do you mean you do nuance badly? What does that mean? Well, I, well is, that, is that a bit of a military thing? No, I don't think it is. I, I mean, don't leave them wondering is, is not a bad way to be. I mean, I've got a, a viewpoint. You don't have to agree with it. And I'll absolutely respect your right to disagree with me, you know, vociferously if that's the way it is. Mm. But, you know, don't stop me from saying it. No, but it's funny to hear you say you don't do nuance. If we just um, pause a moment and think about that incredible um, speech you gave uh, when, gosh, you'll have to remind me of the year, but it might have been 2015, the Get Out speech. Oh, that was 2013. 2013. Mm. So there had been revelations mm. um, brought to your attention of some really pretty disgusting disgusting behaviour within uh, your army and behaviour that apparently had been going on for some time Mm. uh, that was very demeaning of women, um, the sexual exploitation of women and the belittling of. And it it really highlighted a filthy culture of of 
disgusting attitude towards the role of women in the army. So when you were made aware of this, and quite frankly, I guess in 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 common phraseology, I would say you went ballistic, and you made a speech that was um, broadcast, and you were so angry well, I was. that I could almost see the the, the sweat popping well, out no, of your pores. There you was no so sweat. There was, there was a hard message to deliver that had to be delivered and it was And certainly no nuance is really my point. No, <laughs> and it had to be delivered with the right tone and, and I think it probably was. It was really, in, in, in its essence, just someone saying to his workforce, in my case, that treating your colleagues with respect was a precondition of your continued employment. That was... Now, when, when you sit here very gently and, 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 and say it quietly like that, it sounds fine or other nuanced, but the way you said it at the time, yeah, but I was which so, was televised instantly... I was instantly. so upset for two reasons. Firstly, no one loves the army, the Australian army, more than me. I have been surrounded by it from the moment of my birth with my father as a long service, a very long service career. And Dad and I had together, unbroken, 70 years of service to the country. No one loves the army more than me. Yeah, it's not perfect. No organisation is. And I tackled certain things with my leadership team when I was the chief of army in a particular way. So what I saw and what I was made aware of, deeply, deeply affected me. And I was angry. But no, just, sorry, just to finish, there was a se- there's a second thing here too, though, which you lose sight of because you only see a three-minute YouTube clip. And that is that, you know, since uh, 2011, particularly in the army, and I say that in, with due respect to my my uh, fellow service chiefs at the time, because the army had a long journey to travel, particularly in terms of better gender uh, equality. We had made some really significant inroads. We'd increased the number of women in our army by hundreds of women to the betterment of our army and to the betterment of the nation. We were, we were coming up with some really innovative ideas around uh, the the, the broadened employment of women in our army, better recruiting and particularly retention for women coming back into the military workplace. And to be confronted by what had happened, I just, I felt in despair because my, my great concern was that, that you, you know, a member of the fourth estate or and, and the dirty you, media. <laughs> you, a citizen of this country, and beyond that, a woman, an Australian woman, would look at the the message that the, the, what we were doing in the army, and then counterbalance with the, the latest reputational crisis, and throw up your hands and say, "Well, well, he's just full of bluff and bluster. He's not actually doing anything. He's just, you know, saying this to to make himself feel better." And it wasn't like that because. So many thousands of of our soldiers by that stage, men and women, were making changes to what had been traditional military service with a view to being a more effective military as a result. And I was just so concerned that all that work would start to be corroded in, in the public's mind. Now, I don't 
in the end think it was. And I think that what happened allowed for people such as yourself to go, well, I think this bloke is fair dinkum. Well, I think this is a really important point. So I remember very clearly when I saw that video. In fact, someone uh, rang me and said, quick, get online, have a look at this. It was late on a Sunday night, I, I recall. And I was shocked. I knew you. Um, we'd met and I'd watched you as, as a journalist. I'd watched your, your, your work for some time. And I was shocked because to me, watching it, a, an angry feminist, there was no doubt that you were furious and that you were serious. The way you said that if those underlings, <laughs> your underlings in the army, if they did not like the inclusion of women, then get out, mm. was just uncompromising. It was unequivocal and it was very clear. That not much nuance. There was no nuance. <laughs> That's the whole point. There was absolutely no nuance. So, yes, I think it's very funny that you can even talk about nuance. But there was no, there was no doubt that you were really angry and I remember being quite excited whilst, you know, shocked also thinking, that in fact it was a turning point. But before we get to that, can you just explain to people who aren't uh, aware of the background of what what the scandal was, the so-called Jedi Council, just in a nutshell, what it was that was so offensive? Oh, look, a, a group of men, and it was a a, a small group, uh, quite a an inner cabal, had, had shared emails that were denigrating to women, Several of the, uh, well, a number of the emails were accompanied by lurid photos that had been doctored or, or used in a very, um, foul and pernicious way. And they transmitted them over the uh, defense email network, the restricted network, which was in itself, uh, uh, wrong to do. I mean, and there were all sorts of regulations that it contravened, but there was the content that... Now, they'd been doing it for a while and it had actually been... It had come to light. Um, but because... the the It come to light some time before David Hurley and I were made aware of it. But the, the issues were, because it was being done over an email system using the internet as well... It was very hard to pin down who was actually involved. And so that smaller group who were all discharged from the army, uh, then, you know, if it was, it was a bit, a bit like corruption spreading out. There were people who mm. received their emails and we could see that they weren't involved, but they, they had pushed Been the emails anyway. on. Yeah. And, and then there was a group around them that had a bigger group who were, bystanders in all of this who saw what was going on but didn't do anything to report I, it. I just want to pick you up on that issue of bystanders and I don't want to mm. we, we don't need to go into the detail of, of what happened following the Jedi Council revelations. But bystander is a really interesting term, of course, when we're talking about really deep-seated sexism and uh, and quite frankly abuse of women in workplaces. In something such as a military, you've, you've pointed this out yourself later on when you gave a, an extraordinary presentation at NATO, in fact, where you talked about the army being resistant to change and men being resistant to change. You must have been aware, given you had spent your life in the army and, and indeed your father had, 
also. Um, it was in your blood, it was in your DNA. You must have been aware of a culture that wasn't conducive to accepting women. And I know you'd already been involved in trying to make change and improving recruitment, et cetera, et cetera. But it's kind of interesting that it took something quite scandalous that was about to break in the media. Oh, well, no, no, because I think, well, just to pull you up, I think I'd already well and truly uh, changed my mindset. Uh, And that happened in 2011, largely because of the review that uh, that the Labor government uh, instituted in the wake of the ADFA Skype scandal, which had happened in early 2011. They'd pointed Liz Broderick as to do the review. And it was meeting Liz and then spending time with her and other women, both in and out of the military, that, that really were the, the catalyst for a change of... Uh, Perspective on my part. You've again. I've, I've heard you speak a lot about this, and it, it, you know it is an interesting point of change that you talk about. But what I, I don't understand is what were you changing from? What was okay. your mindset yeah. before the revelations for these, from these women who had been abused, sitting in front of you, telling you their stories, yeah. and you it's like you suddenly got it. But what what was your mindset before then about the role of women, and in fact? The culture of the so army. so I had you know worked with uh, women in the military all my military career. I hadn't served. I had served with women on headquarters, and look, you know, I was very well brought up by my parents, and look, I got critics uh, on any range of things, but I don't think anyone w- would be holding me to task for being disrespectful personally to No, but, you, no, but no. you knew the industry was quite disrespectful. Um, well, to be fair to, you know, the thousands of leaders before me, we had all tried to tackle issues when they presented themselves. And I think this is important because I see it in every profession now. And I do speak to organisations who come and say, oh, well, you know, what have we got to do? If we became aware of a particular incident, it was dealt with. It was investigated. People were dealt with fairly, due legal process, and if they were found to, to hold, be held to account, then they were. The, the key issue, though, is if you see that incident as separate to that incident, as separate to another incident and another incident spaced by geography or by time or by unit or by circumstance. Mm. And you don't link them up and accept that this is a culture. Correct. So the big revelation for me, and yeah, I think I can be absolutely fairly criticised for it, coming to it too late in life, but at least at a time when I could probably pull big levers Mm. to do something about it, was to see this not as... uh, just one thing. Uh, just as harassment or sexual predation or bullying or, or whatever, but to see it as something broader, to see it as, as a, a, an unarguable conclusion that, that there was aspects to the culture of our army that had to change. Now, that for me, as a 55-year-old uh, newly appointed Lieutenant General, was a huge step. And I mean, it probably won't come across that way to your listeners 
And fair enough. Why would it? But, uh, but I can understand what you say when you say for you that was a big So challenge. I wasn't, yeah. you know, I don't think I ever swept anything under the carpet. I, I always tried to, I tried to do the right thing and treat people fairly. But I had a responsibility to look at this from a institutional perspective because I was the institution's chief. And that's what led me to conclude that, you know, this was cultural. And what's culture? I mean, I don't have an, I'm not an anthropologist, I'm a sociologist, but I got the shorthand conception that, that culture's the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And when you look at it like that, where are the stories about women? Where are we celebrating women's achievements? Women have been part of our military since, well, our army since the 1st of March 1901 when the Australian army came into being. But we don't celebrate this. Well, we weren't. We weren't celebrating their stories, their victories, like we were our men's. And, you know, people accuse me, again, I sort of understand their their logic, albeit that I don't agree with it, that, you know, I was all, all of a sudden, you know, feminising the army. Well, you know, that's rubbish. Our percentage of women participating in the military in the army during my time as the chief of army only ever got to, I think we got, we got it to 12%, which is a tiny figure. It's gone on and on since then. But we would give great emphasis, appropriately, of course, to masculine physical bravery. Now, that's important. And, you know, you see the extraordinary things that that men in the most dire of circumstances have achieved in our name throughout our military history. Yeah, but... But but, you can't just tell those stories by themselves. No, because that... Yes, exactly. And, And that kind of legacy being the only legacy, of course, completely... Rubs women out of history, makes them absent. But no, when in no, fact, no, as you say, they were there all the time to, and always have been. To, to not leap to the, the army's defence because it's a big, tough organisation and it could defend itself without me. But every organisation that I have had any dealings with in my post-military career, be it a bank, be it a mining organisation, be it a church or religious group, be it a public service or a not-for-profit. They have exactly the same issues, mm. exactly. And you start to talk to leadership groups, as I do, and you start to, you know, I just relate my story because that's the only thing I've got any expertise in. And I can see lights coming on. Mm. Or I can see lights coming on in the men in the audience. All the women who are in the audience are just rolling their eyes <laughs> thinking, well, finally. Yeah, yeah. And, and yes, we've, we've been saying this for years. We're going to take a, a quick break. And you mentioned um, celebration and telling of stories, women's stories. We're going to come back to that straight after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. David, we're beginning to see and hear leadership being spoken about a little bit differently. Um, for the first time, globally, media is, has become a little interested in women's leadership as in a feminised kind of leadership. And we're seeing this through the, the global pandemic, the COVID-19 response, particularly from some of those women leaders in nations that have done very well. And I point out here that the maths of it's quite fascinating. There are only 18 nations in the world that are governed by women leaders, and at least eight of those have been a lot more successful than, than other nations in how they responded to COVID. And the leadership styles are beginning to really be discussed. Do you see that? Do you see that we're beginning to become a little oh, bit yeah. au fait with a different style of leadership? I mean, I think if you're just going off, you know, media analysis and public commentary, it is a noticeable new feature. These things are being talked about. But of course, if you just set whatever the the contemporary pundits are looking at on the 8th of uh, July 2020, women have always lent an enormous amount to any problem-solving uh, activity. Yeah, no and question, their leadership, no question. their leadership, when it is given the opportunity to shine, have, in all fields of endeavour, been enormously successful. But we don't remember them. We don't talk about them. We don't so get much. to yeah. Well, we often don't get to tell those stories. I mean, but we're we, now seeing it. So you know, you you look across the Tasman and you you look at what uh, the Ardern government um, has achieved in terms of managing uh, COVID nineteen or the the terrible events with the the slaying in the in the mosques uh, last year, and you do see uh, a level of empathy at a at a national level that men, most men struggle to authentically convey. Now, I'm not saying that men don't try it, and some men are much better at it, and there have been many you know, empathetic men, uh, men leaders. Not, a, not but, a lot, though. Not, a, not uh, a lot when it comes to national leadership. Uh, well, you know, we probably don't have necessarily the time to debate this in full, but... Uh, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, 
I, I, off the I top ex- of my head, I can't I accept- really think of any other than we, you know, we know Justin Trudeau is highly regarded, and and uh, Macron for for a little while there, but he's French. Uh, oh, but you know, no, I don't yeah. see a lot of that kind of leadership. The sort of thing you're talking about was just the authenticity, the empathy, the compassion. Uh, Ardern as a New Ze- the New Zealand Prime Minister, she uses a different language. Her whole approach is quite different, and we have really seen it highlighted during the pandemic in particular. Yes. We don't see that elsewhere. uh, I mean, among male leaders. No. All right. Well, look, you know, I'm I'm not going to – I can debate it if you want me to. I think that you might see it in a different way and you would legitimately say, well, but that's very much my point, that, you know, men are doing it in a different way and it's not as authentic or it's not as – uh, affecting as someone like well, Ardern. Well, give me an example. Oh, I think that there have been times where I've been really pulled up short by the actions of... Oh, when Paul Keating knelt in New Guinea and kissed the ground at the start of uh, the Kokoda track, that was, as I understand it, completely unrehearsed mm. and was done in a moment of true empathy with those who had served in that terrible campaign in New Guinea. Oh, look, there, there is no doubt there, there have been actions that have been very touching. It's the same when, when the Prime Minister Bob Hawke cried yes. at one stage after Tiananmen Square. There are actions and displays and we all go, oh, my goodness, you know, how amazing is that? Isn't that wonderful? But we're not we're not talking about a, a, a total style. With these women leaders, we're talking about a style that has has been part of their leadership throughout. Yes, I would agree with that, although I would say that an Ardern or a Merkel or a Thatcher or a, a, an Indira Gandhi, they are still making political decisions, mm. and those political decisions are both pragmatic and occasionally ruthless. They might be out of the public gaze and they might be conveyed uh, to an electorate in a different way by that particular woman, Sure, but they but that, are still exercising political leadership. Oh, I'm not, I'm not in, suggesting in they're not. That that, of course, with all that, that conveys. Well, they they must be to to be in the positions that they are. They must be good politi- political strategists. I've got to pull you up there, though. I would take Thatcher and Gandhi out of <laughs> out of that what, group. Are they, be- both women. Well, sure, but it doesn't mean that they are demonstrating great female leadership. I mean, if anything, I think Thatcher was a great disappointment to women. You know, she ran a cabinet with not one woman in it, mm. not one. She didn't bring women along at all. Um, she was a great political strategist, absolutely. Yeah, yes, but um, and we don't need to debate the you know the, the the merits of her prime ministership. But it's interesting just because she's a woman, and and I think we we often many of us fall into this trap. But just because someone's a woman doesn't necessarily mean that they demonstrate uh, traits, characteristics, or behaviours that uh, that. We'd encourage all young women to emulate. No, 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 not at all. And I, I wouldn't. Um, I, I wouldn't. I mean, some women are shocking leaders. <laughs> Nonetheless, you know, a Thatcher or a Gandhi are still shaped to become the leaders that they are through a lived woman's experience. You know, Thatcher through um, the the forties, fifties, sixties. Oh, in, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think but that I, no, I think that's important because I think, you know, what, 
you're, you're but, that, but that's not what she was bringing to her leadership and understanding of that. I mean, yes, her background shaped her. The fact that her father was a, a, a you know ran a grocery store. You know, she'd had a tough life. I mean, all of all our life experiences shape us. It, which, in fact, is why it's so important to have a diversity Absolutely. of people right, in leadership and me. around a table because we have such diverse um, experiences. But look, I just I don't want to get bogged down in, in talking about Thatcher, but just. I do want to jump forward a little bit in that we in this country, I believe, have had a a tremendous problem with women in leadership, particularly in politics, which is where we see leadership nationally and where the public hears about women in leadership in particular. When we had our first female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, before she became Prime Minister, and she talks about this in her memoir, that when there was an opportunity for her to step up around um, 2007, before Kevin Rudd did, who eventually, of course, became Prime Minister, she made a decision then that her gender was too much of a negative and that that the electorate, the Australian electorate, would never accept her as the Labor leader to become Prime Minister because of her gender. Quite frankly, that's still a major issue. Yes, and it it resides, in my view, lock, stock and barrel within the culture of the the nation. Where do we celebrate you know, mm. women's achievements and how do we celebrate them? If we were much more open about this and if we were much more egalitarian and, and inclusive, then Julia Gillard's path to prime ministership would have been shaped by the noted uh, achievements of millions of Australian women who remained throughout the course of their lives and certainly into history, very much either footnotes or completely unrecognised. And so I think what's happening when you see a Jacinta Ardern, people sit up and take notice and think, well, she's doing a pretty good job, isn't she? Mm. And gosh, she's, she's there. And so there are people now, men and women, young men and young men, who can look at someone and go, hey, that's something that's an achievement. Do you think, though, and this is an important point, I suppose, given that we are now, particularly in media, and I refer to media because I know that you know media really does sort of shape the frames of the way that public then understand an issue or, or, or see an issue. And at the moment, because there is a, a global media fascination with women's leadership and what looks like a feminised style of leadership, do you think, though, that that, that is going to really permeate a culture like Australia that is a very sexist one? Well, I think it's a start point, isn't it? I think that the commentary, and it's not just in traditional forms of media, but certainly in social media, the commentary is definitely changing. It's... Commentary is changing, but it's culture. I mean, let's just go back to... It's got to start somewhere. Yeah, but, you know, just when I think we're making advances and people are beginning to get it, particularly I'll just jump on to domestic violence now, which is another issue that you have spoken publicly about a lot. You were on television some time ago on the ABC's Q&A and the issue of, of domestic violence was being discussed and a young man asked a question of you where he insisted that the data that being yeah, referred to uh, about the number of deaths of women in Australia and uh, abuse of women was wrong, and he quoted Mark Latham, God forbid. But um, 
you know, you. It, I don't think you, I was very. I don't think I was very nuanced in my answer. To that no, you weren't new, <laughs> nuanced at all. Once again, and that's what I mean. You know, you are, you are, do get yourself in trouble. But what you said was absolutely right. But at one point, you got again. You could see as a, as a viewer, I could see you were getting really frustrated because you were trying to say to him, "Look, I don't care." And you didn't say this, so I'm putting words into your mouth. But it was almost like you were saying, "I don't care what what statistics you're quoting me, and I don't believe you anyway." And I think you got it wrong. Okay, that's one point, but it's not about just the statistics. What we're talking about here is a culture mm, and it's, exactly it's not just a matter of numbers and if we say, oh, the numbers have plateaued or the numbers have gone down, we stop trying. It's the culture. But as I say, just when I think we're making advances in Australia, you know, some stupid comments like that are made and you think, you know, the culture is just, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's not improving. It's, it, you know, we're not really penetrating. Oh, look, maybe I could be accused here of, of being, you know, wildly optimistic, but <laughs> I wonder if 10 years ago we would have even noticed that those comments, though, they would have been just subliminal reinforcements to the existing and prevailing culture that surrounded us from our birth. Now it's not. Now comments such as that are taken issue with by people obviously such as mm. yourself but but increasingly men as well yes people like me who don't accept that that is a an observation that can go unchallenged and increasingly now i think we're seeing a very active debate it's rancorous that's the way we tend to do things in this country, I think, to our, our discredit, but that's another point. I think we would be much better off having more rational and quieter conversations about these, but that's probably not within our nature. But you, doesn't it almost yeah. need to be rancorous at times? Oh, well, yes, it does. Just yeah, to, yeah. to get yeah. a message through. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And But I, I, I'm... I am a Again, glass you're no master half, of nuance. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm... I am a glass half full on this. Now, I have some wonderful friends, women friends, who don't share my optimism, who think that um, in the last 25 years, we've seen a lot of talk about change and, you know, women's been given opportunities in life that they hadn't been, but it's not being translated in actual lives lived or, you know, in data terms, the numbers on a page. And I, of course they're right. But I do keep coming back to the point, and maybe I'm just now completely wrapped up in my own personal experience, and it is skewing my view, so I acknowledge that. But I think that I would, you know, if I had gone on my life's trajectory without the changes that occurred, particularly in 2011 and beyond, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, but I probably wouldn't be noticing yeah. the changes. Now I am. I'm alive to the fact that there is changes happening. And when you see, uh, you know, the Prime Minister in New Zealand or, or Angela Merkel or, or other women who are doing, you know, such great work, still making tough political decisions, but presenting themselves and conveying to their, their, their potential electorates uh, messages that are framed completely differently but but carry even more weight because of that. I think, you know, maybe we are in the end, in a ham-fisted way, creating a world that's better for our sons but particularly our daughters. And that's what I'd like to think we're all actually on the planet to achieve. <laughs> and you're not alone in, in, in that hope. I have to ask this before we finish. 
As someone who has been in very, very senior, significant leadership roles for so long and certainly as Chief of Army, in your observation, and I want a really honest answer here, do you, do you think that the men and women do bring very different traits to leadership? In fact, I'll, I'll frame this a different way. Do you think that leadership traits are gendered? No. I think that effective leadership is based on deep personal values that you can share with the values of the organisation that you are a part of. So you are travelling, if you like, with a, a values synchronisation. You, you, you're not you believe in, in the Army's case, courage, initiative, teamwork and respect. But, did, but you, did you see women within the Army try and, and, and become leaders by being like the men oh, ahead yes, of them? Oh, yes. Because that, there was no other example. Yes, but you see that in every profession. You asked so it doesn't me, allow women you, to actually be asked, women or be valued oh, no, for no, being women, no. does it? You asked me if I thought that traits of good leadership were gendered and I said no. I think that the way you convey or exercise your leadership is, and it should be, entirely individual. And women will bring character strengths and, and aspects of their, their nature to leadership, which is highly effective. And we see that in a military now. We see it internationally, uh, you know, in large organisations. I mean, you see, I, I've only worked for two women in my life. One was Julia Gillard when she was Prime Minister and I was Chief of Army, and one was Cindy Hook, who was the CEO of Deloitte, and I, you know, I've done work with Deloitte. I can tell you... That's it. Obviously, I find that extraordinary well, that yes, in, in your up... very, very long career, yeah, you you've go. only ever had effectively two women yeah. bosses, so to speak, the Prime Minister being one of them. Or I've been in a career for over 30 years. I have only ever really had male bosses. Yeah, well, there you Until go. Until now. Yeah, you and I share a, a similar life's journey mm. and yet obviously you're a woman and I'm a man. Says speaks volumes for, mm. you know, where we've been and how far we need to go. It, it does. I do think women, just to, just to make the point, I think we can get wrapped up in this. Good leadership is good leadership. It is empathetic. It sees the future. It shapes an organisation for the future. It brings people with the leader. It holds people to account when they have to be held to account. It's values, it's founded on on values. And that's not, you know, that's not something specific to one gender or another. David, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. So there you have it. Leadership is not gendered. Good leadership is just good leadership, according to David Morrison, retired Chief of Army and 2016 Australian of the Year. And as you may have picked up in our discussion, David has clearly done a great deal of thinking and self-reflection around issues of leadership and the contribution of women. What I really love about talking with him is that for a man whose pathway seemed destined and in many respects straightforward, David actually chose to take the hard road by doing and saying things that he knew would challenge entrenched views and cultures. And he's never stopped doing that. Which raises a question, is it an inherent responsibility of leaders to use their power and position when they've got the spotlight 
to call out gender inequality and discrimination. Are they obliged to do that as leaders? Should we expect that from all men and women in positions of power? What do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You can connect with me on Twitter at Virginia underscore House, H-A-U-S-S, or find me on Facebook at Broad Talk, or one word, and join the Broad Talk Roundtable group where you can check in with questions, comments, views, news, anything you'd like to share. There's always a seat for you at the Broad Talk Roundtable. And for some great reads, check out broadagenda.com.au. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this chat. We've got some terrific and challenging conversations with leaders coming up, so do make sure you subscribe to Broad Talk and every new episode will appear each Thursday in your pod feed. And if you're feeling warmly disposed, perhaps you'd like to leave us a review on whatever pod platform you use. And my thanks to the world's best podcast producer, Martin Pierce. He's a master whiz. Until next week, Broadies, happy chatting. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.